Hello there, everyone. Welcome to Digital Nomad Mastery, the podcast and the video cast where we teach you how to make money while traveling the world. Speaking of traveling the world, we're currently traveling through the beautiful Philippines. And as we're traveling, we're continuing our podcast interview series. We're already at over 500 different interviews, and we are continuing all the way up to 1,000 and beyond. We love interviewing fellow uh, world travelers, fellow digital nomads, fellow entrepreneurs, and fellow animal lovers and wildlife conservationists. We have an amazing one on the show here today. His name is John Griffith. He's known as Griff, and he is the host of Wild Jobs on Animal Planet Go, animalplanet.com, and he's super passionate about the area of wildlife conservation. And, uh, you know, as us who are traveling around the world, we see the plight of animals everywhere. So um, I'm super excited to bring up this important topic onto our show uh, to really educate, inspire, and equip people to do their part in conserving the amazing wildlife on our planet. So, John, welcome to the show, my friend. How are you doing? Hello, thank you, thank you, thank you. Glad to be here, and hello, everybody. So, John, uh, why don't we start with your story? Why don't we uh, get a little bit of a background growing up, and how did you get so passionate about animal conservation? You know, it's funny because I do a lot of wildlife conservationists. I'm in the backcountry a lot. In fact, I just got out of backcountry, super remote area doing salmon habitat restoration, and, um, that's why my eyes kind of puffed up right now because I got red with bark and, and lots in my eyes. But it's the price you pay to being outdoors. But um, I didn't fall in love with wildlife conservation in the backcountry. I didn't fall in love with wildlife conservation in the wilderness. I actually fell in love with wildlife in a very urban trailer park. And it was where my grandmother lived. And um, she was poor and she lived in this trailer park it was pretty much all paved over, you know, can you visualize that kind of just like super urban trailer park? And she had this very small section of a yard where she had just planted a lot of flowers, a lot of vegetable crops, had a little pond. And I remember one of my earliest memories, and I must've been three or four because I was holding her hand. I had one of those big heads, you know, so I was like walking down her steps to her yard and holding her hand and grandma wasn't, she's five foot two, but she was a giant at the time. And she took me out in the yard, and I just remember there being bees and, and butterflies and, and her telling me, I can call toads. I have this magic way of calling toads. And so I was like, okay, well, let's see this. And she made this funny sound, and she said, go look under that pot. And I lifted the pot, and there was a toad. And I picked it up, and I remember just being fascinated with what I found by looking under this pot. and thought she had magical powers. And that was the beginning of me really wanting to go outside and explore and turn over rocks and, and look to see where things lived and got interested in what they ate. And um, so I, I credit my love of wildlife to my, my grandmother and my mother. Um, and my mother also would take me, once my mom saw this interest, took me outdoors. We did a lot of exploring and creek walks and stuff. And so I think that, you know, your family creates, you know, at least my family creates wildlife conservationists. So uh, in terms of taking it from a passion to a business, tell us a little bit about the journey. Like you were so passionate and how did you actually start making money out of it? Well, you know, it started back in childhood. When I was 11, I volunteered at Wildlife Rehab Center, so a wildlife hospital. And then I just kind of built on it from there. You know, I had, I had a, like got derailed when I was a teenager because I was a bad teenager for a while. But then um, when I was 18, I joined the California Conservation Corps. And so the California Conservation Corps is a state youth development work program that teaches you job skills while you're working outdoors. So, you know, we fought fires, we built trails, we did salmon habitat restoration, wildlife habitat restoration. 
And that really inspired me. And so I went to college. And then from there, I started working for the Nature Conservancy and Wildlife Conservation Society and being a biologist and starting to write about wildlife conservation, either fictional and non, non-fictional and fictional. So I actually wrote a book called Total Magic Going Mad, which is a uh, fictional story about magical wildlife conservationists. And, um, and from there, just kept building on each other. I came back to the California Conservation Corps as a crew supervisor. And um, working with my core members, I started making videos on YouTube. So I originally started making videos on YouTube just to kind of document our work and so that their families, the 18 and 25 year olds that I work with, most of them who are from distressed communities, so that their families could go and see what they're doing, you know, because if you're a kid from downtown LA where there's very, you know, little access to wildlife habitat or, you know, parks and stuff, um, to being in the middle of the Redwood Forest, it's it's pretty phenomenal. So I wanted their families to see, their friends to see, so I put these um, videos on YouTube and also like how I connect with them. So dancing and stuff. And one of those videos went viral and it took my platform and went kaboom. And that's when things really started. Kaboom. <laughs> that's amazing. So what have you done in terms of like uh, the different careers? Because it's quite interesting. You're actually doing interning for a day with the wild jobs. I'd love to hear kind of like, uh, you know, you told me before that if you were like a low impact ecotourism advisor, like it's just these unique job titles. So tell us about the, the different areas of animal conservation, wildlife conservation you've done in terms of career or job titles or uh, roles. Oh, I've been a wildlife biologist doing bird and fish and amphibian surveys. I've been a, a botanist where I've done plant surveys. Um, I worked for Wildlife Conservation Society doing remote surveys. Um, I'm currently doing salmon habitat restoration. Uh, Earth Island Institute sent me to Siberia where I was a low impact ecotourism advisor uh, where I helped the people of the Lake Baikal group, the Great Baikal, the Great Lake Baikal Trail Group. And um, where I went around with them and helped them identify things that would be interesting for Westerners while keeping it low impact because they had a vested interest in, in not um, exploiting their resources um, for economic gain, which I thought was wonderful. So Earth Island Institute partnered with them and sent me over there with three other Americans and we did some advising on uh, what would attract Americans and some low impact trail construction. Um, and then I've also done uh, Animal Planet's Wild Jobs. And so that kind of came about from that viral video I told you about where I was dancing with core members. Um, that took my platform and went kaboom. And then I started getting a lot of interest in conservation work I'm doing, the environmental education work I'm doing. And uh, they offered me a show in uh, Animal Wild Jobs. And it's just a one season show. It was just a, kind of a project. But recently they've been doing analysis and they're thinking about doing a second season. So keep your fingers crossed. Yeah, looking forward to see what develops there. Uh, so you've been doing this for several decades now in terms of the conservation work. What have you seen in terms of the good and the bad over the last few, uh, you know, couple of decades of work in this industry? What have you seen in terms of like, what's happened? What have been the positive? What's been the not so positive? Uh, maybe I should start the not so positive. Um, what I found is that most of our conservationists are really active conservationists were the baby boomers and kind of like riding that wave of like where the early 70s, the Endangered Species Act was signed, Clean Air, Clean Water Act. There was a lot of momentum for um, conservation. 
uh, with Rachel Carson's book and those kinds of things, Silent Spring. And then I think there started to be some complacency um, developing. And I think a lot of that has to do with the, the boom in technology has really kept a lot of people indoors, a lot of kids indoors. And so you really can't care about something you don't understand. And I think a huge part of our population has grown up indoors doing technologies. They haven't been out there turning over pots and finding toads. They haven't been catching snakes. They haven't been like getting dirty in the creek and accidentally getting poison oak or whatever. And so there's not the bond to the outdoors um, as there was maybe 20 years ago during my childhood or the, or the childhoods of my parents. And I think that, that has detracted from conservation quite a bit. There is still a lot of millennial and Gen Z conservationists, but I think that um, there's far less. I think that would be the negative aspect of conservation, um, a lack of understanding. I think the positive thing is we've learned that there's a lot of things that people can do from home, little things that can help wildlife out in big ways. So uh, speaking of little things in big ways, like, you know, us who are listening and watching to you, you, you've done great, massive, big, gigantic, huge, humongous things. Us little guys, we kind of feel overwhelmed. We're like, oh, this problem is so big. You, you see that with poverty, with homelessness, with, uh, you know, like the big epidemics of the world, including wildlife conservation. So what can we do? What can Ricky do? What can Joel, Sally, Susan, all the other people listening and watching do in this uh, area? There's a lot of things people can do. I think the number one thing you can do is go outside, go exploring, read interpretive signs when you're on the trail, listen to these environmental educators that you encounter in the parks, like just kind of become informed and have fun with it. I think that's the number one important thing, especially if you have kids or friends, please take them with you. I think that is so, so helpful. Another thing you could do is just understand that you're voting with your dollar. So um, try to become informed of your purchases. Like, is the palm oil that's in a product you're eating, is that from a certified safe source or is this you know, something that's you know, contributing to rainforest destruction? Little things like that also make a big difference. Voting with your dollar, rewarding the companies that are a little bit more conscious. Um, probably the easiest thing people can do if they are a homeowner, even if they're not, is just planting plants that are native to the region. A lot of people don't understand the importance of native plants and that alone would make a huge difference because People think insects eat plants. So they're like, oh, there's an insect. It just eats plants. You can, you can find it in your house and stick it on any plant and it'll be happy. Any caterpillar can go on any plant. And that's not true at all. Plants, um, insects and plants have evolved with each other. 95% of insects are specific to certain native plants. Okay, they're not just eating anything. Only 5% of the insects are just eating anything. So by planting native plants, you are attracting certain types of insects that evolve with those plants. So think about the monarch and the milkweed. We understand the monarchs are disappearing, so we're planting milkweed because that's their nursery host plant. Most butterflies have relationships with a particular genus or a small group of plants like that. So when you plant native plants, you get native caterpillars, you get native butterflies. And then birds, almost all birds, you know, besides raptors and fish-eating birds, but even birds that eat seeds and berries are feeding insects to their young. And so they're coming to your native plants, they're pulling those caterpillars off, and they're taking them to their nest. If you don't have native plants, you don't have a bunch of caterpillars, you don't have a bunch of birds. And so you're upsetting the whole system. If people just planted native plants, 70% of their yard was native plants, or even just a few, even if you just have a balcony and you have a couple of native plants on there, you can make a huge 
difference um, to the local ecosystem, to the local wildlife. Thank you for all of those uh, suggestions. So we've talked uh, about the past, the current, and I'd love to hear the future. Like, what hope is there? Is there hope? Uh, because sometimes it can feel doom and gloom. There's no hope. So give us give us a little bit of an insider's glimpse on what the future holds with regards to animal uh, wildlife conservation. Yeah, the doom and gloom is real. You know, I've gotten I call it ecological depression. And I've gotten that a few times where I'm just like, wow, there was 1 billion people in 1900. There's 7 billion today. Um, a lot of them just don't care. They just want their latest shoes and their throwaway stuff and their, you know, one-time use plastic and their hamburger. And um, which is another thing people could do if they want to help the environment is stop eating all cow products um, or at least reduce them greatly. You know, go from, you know, meat five times a week to one time a week. You know, that would really help. But anyway, sometimes I get ecological depression about, you know, the growing population, the growing consumption. And um, if I get too depressed about it, if I get too bogged down about it, then I will, I might stop trying. So I really try to focus on the positive. I really try to be a solutionary, try to think of solutions, take compassionate action whenever possible, and just try to be part of the solution, not focus on the negative. And I think that other people should do the same thing, like continue to vote with your dollar, continue to plant native plants, continue to do... Um, make the right decisions for the environment and um, go outside and have fun and enjoy nature while it's there. I think that if um, the powers that be, the governing powers, see that you're going to the park and you're enjoying the natural resources, you're bird watching or you're snorkeling or you're just recreating in some way, that they'll be more likely to protect those places. Love it, love it. You know, you know, uh, you know it's, it's sad when you hear the doom and gloom. So I love this whole idea of the individual responsibility, us taking action and switching the doom and gloom to hope and positivity and a brighter future. Uh, so in terms of, uh, you know, uh, we were going to talk a little bit more about wild jobs, Animal Planet. Uh, it's quite phenomenal. I had a chance to look at uh, some of the intern jobs you've done. Walk us through that. You have, uh, I believe, how many episodes? Uh, 10. Ten, 10 episodes, one season. Tell us about the those cool episodes, maybe if you want to highlight one of them or it really sticks out to you. You know, there's, it's, that it's hard to just think about one that sticks out because so many of them were so amazing. A lot of these people we worked with were from nonprofits and had dedicated their life to helping wildlife. Um, I think it's episode four, whereas at the Gibbon Conservation Center. So gibbons are a type of ape. When people think of apes, they think of gorillas and orangutans and chimpanzees. But gibbons are apes too, and they're primarily in Southeast Asia. And um, they are, most of the species are critically endangered. There's one that lives on an island outside Chinese, uh, China, excuse me, that are, oh, there's only like 20 of them left. So um, the Gibbon Conservation Center works to, to educate people and to do some selective breeding to help bring back the species. Well, it was started by a man, and I forgot his name, but he put out an ad in a paper that he needed volunteers and Gabby was in Romania and she barely spoke English. She saw this ad and she thought, I really want to do that. So she worked really hard to get a visa and to get some money and came out to volunteer with him. And he, he was on his sister's property. He was like 40 Gibbons. And while she was there learning how to speak English and learning about Gibbons, he passed away. And the sister said, well, I'm going to have to shut this down or charge you rent. And she's like me, I'm from Romania. I'm, I'm just I'm volunteer. And she stepped in, she opened it to the public, and she fundraised. And Gibbon Conservation Center is now um, 
doing great work to conserve Gibbons. They're endorsed by Jane Goodall. Um, and she is episode four. Please check her out and go to the Gibbon Conservation Center.org, I believe. And if you're one, looking for a solutionary, a wildlife hero to support, I'd highly recommend Gabby. She's episode four, and I had a great time with her. Um, there's also a woman named Ellie who uh, cares a lot about American Mustangs, wild horses. And she's episode, I think it's episode eight, Wild Horse Rescue. And she found out that there was 200 horses on their way to slaughter because they take them to Canada and they slaughter them. They sell the meat to Japan to become horse sushi. And she went, she found out about it. She went immediately there, flew there and bought all 200 horses out of the parking lot and then bought a ranch to put them on and has been part of um, training the young ones to adopt out. And then, and then also uh, funding people who use, I think it's called PVP, but it's a uh, birth control that you put in a dart and you can go out there with these groups and you can shoot these horses. You have to do it once a year, but it uh, is a birth control. So there's less horses being born because that's the issue. The horses um, don't have any natural predators. And so they're overextending the vegetation value. And so they're getting into conflict with ranchers and wildlife. So um, she funds things like that. So it was a joy to work with her and do an episode with her as well. Beautiful, beautiful. I, I'll have uh, the links below to those episodes. Uh, one of your passions is to highlight the diversity in the conservation movement, including ethnic and racial diversity. Uh, maybe you can highlight some of those, uh, either farm wild jobs or just generally in the, I mean, uh, you've probably seen hundreds of stories of uh, you know diversity in the conservation movement. So tell us some of yeah. them. Well, you know, I was in a documentary called um, Diversity in Wild Spaces, I believe that it's called. Uh, diversity and inclusion in wild spaces. And it uh, was with John Muir's great-great-grandson who helped sponsor it, Teresa Baker from African-American National Park event. And I think that that documentary captures a lot of the sentiment of the importance of diversity and inclusion in the, in the conservation movement. So when I, I grew up in the Bay Area of California, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with, but it's very racially and ethnically diverse. And so my whole world was racially and ethnically diverse growing up, even my, in my family. And so when I moved to Northern California and got involved in a conservation movement up there, I was kind of surprised that everybody was white, even when some of the watersheds we were working in were majority Latino. And I, I came to discover that the conservation movement um, had, I think for the most part unintentionally, left out uh, people of color and weren't, uh, weren't including them, you know, maybe intentionally, maybe unintentionally. And so <clears throat> it's been one of my goals um, to make sure that everybody is included in the outdoors movement, in the conservation movement, that everybody is participating and that everybody has the same opportunities. And that's been really, really important to me because white people can't save the planet. Um, one group can't save the planet. It's gonna take all of us and we all gotta feel comfortable going outdoors. I think that a lot of people don't understand that um, if you're a, take for example, a black parent and you have little kids and you want to drive to Yellowstone or diverse or, uh, or um, Yosemite and you have to drive by a bunch of communities that have Confederate flags hanging, you feel a little uncomfortable before you even get to the park. And then when you get to the park and everybody in uniform, no one in the uniform looks like you, you also feel a little uncomfortable. So I think that diversifying uh, the conservation movement, parks movement, stuff like that, will have really good results for the conservation movement and for people and families. So they have, they feel like they have more uh, acceptance in our parks and our most rural places. 
Exciting times indeed. Uh, thank you for sharing the diversity. Um, you know, I have a particular passion for fatherhood and family, you know, as a dad of three kids traveling around the world. So what would you say we should do with our kids? You know, like our kids are really the next generation. Are, and our ones, are the ones who are going to reverse the doom and gloom you're talking about. So what do you think we should do as parents of our young ones uh, to teach them, educate them, inspire them to be wildlife conservationists? Well, I think that just uh, what you're doing is great, traveling around and seeing the world. I think your kids are going to grow up with this wonderful perspective about, you know, all the different habitats, all the different kinds of people, all the different kinds of cultures, which will be super healthy for them. I think just getting outside and letting kids explore in an unscheduled, uh, unmanaged way, just like let them turn over rocks, you know, turn the rocks back when you're done. Um, let them snorkel, look at fish, just let them explore and have fun. I think that's really important. Also, going back to the Gibbon Conservation Center, if you're traveling through Southeast Asia and there is a baby gibbon there um, on the roadside for you to take a picture with, it's kidnapped. Its mother was probably shot and that baby is kidnapped and you should explain to your child where that gibbon came from and don't pay the, pay the person to take a photo with it. That is a, uh, a poached and kidnapped situation. And I think that just being aware of that kind of stuff and explaining to your kids um, you know, what's really going on. Yeah, it's cute. It would be a lot cuter to see in its natural habitat with its mother. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, so John, you've been a wealth of info and expertise on this topic. Do you have any resources? Like um, if people want to do, uh, do a little bit more due diligence, uh, check out some websites, some organizations. Uh, do you have any recommendations for us, John? Um, for... Wildlife conservation, definitely, uh, just for internationally, Wildlife Conservation Society uh, is a really good resource. Um, in the United States, National Wildlife Federation is a really good um, organization to check out. Um, and then Animal Planet has uh, a bunch of shows for animal lovers. And, I, and there's, there's an Animal Planet India, and there's Animal Planet Europe, and the Animal Planet Latin America. So there's a lot, of, and it comes in a lot of different languages. And if you check out my show, Wild Jobs, um, you can go to Facebook. It's probably the best place to watch it because the episodes on, on Facebook are commercial free. So if they go to Facebook, Wild Jobs, and you watch the episodes, you could support any of those people that I do um, episodes with because they're all solutionaries. Most of them are nonprofit. Most of them are working like 80 hours a week doing what they believe in. In case of Gabby, she lives at the Gibbon Conservation Center in a tiny house. Um, and you could support those people, and that would be a really awesome thing to do. It would be. I love the whole term socialaries. We've heard of visionaries and socialaries are the ones that implement the vision and make yes. stuff happen, including yourself, John. So uh, and if people want to connect with you, John, on a personal level, if they want to follow your work and, uh, you know, the, the uh, areas you're passionate about, how can they do that? Uh, my website is thenaturenet.org. Thenaturenet.org. It's a new website. I just created it. Um, and then also on Facebook, um, if they just go to Griff, I have a page called Griff and um, also Wild Jobs Facebook page. Perfect. And I'm on, Instagram. Will... I'm on Instagram at the Nature Net. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Easy, easy. Okay. So NatureNet, I'll have the links to, uh, you know, several of the different uh, uh, things we talked about in the show here today. If you're watching YouTube, it will be right in the YouTube description, making it easy for you. And if you're listening on iTunes, it'll be right in the show notes. Again, making it easy for you to click right through and find out more. So John, my friend, you're, you're doing some amazing work. I'm definitely very inspired. Wanted to thank you for your time and to coming on to our show and inspiring our audience here today to be better wildlife conservationists.
Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. And thanks everyone for tuning in. Now it's your turn. Take action, do your part, and make a difference in the lives of our animals and our planet. Thanks everyone. We'll catch up with you guys in the next episode of Digital Nomad Mastery, where we not only teach you how to make money while traveling the world, but also how to make a difference.